no one in the history of the NBA could get underneath the skin of another opponent like Reggie Miller. Reggie Miller um, had mastered the art of trash talk, and he could back it up with his sweet jump shot. Even Michael Jordan, known for his ability to be calm, to be cool, one time actually exploded at Reggie Miller in the notorious fight between Reggie Miller and the one and only Michael Jordan. Um, Reggie Miller, not only did he have the ability to trash talk, uh, this was known by everyone in the NBA, including his sister, Cheryl Miller, who, if you didn't know, was probably the best female basketball player that's ever played the game. In an interview, Cheryl Miller said this, Reggie is the proverbial bad itch down your spine that you can't get to. You need to scratch it so bad, but you can't. It drives you crazy. He's maddening. He is a maddening human being. How do you like your sister telling it real about you? And so Reggie has this ability to stoke the anger within other opponents in the NBA. And so I wonder if you have had that person in your life, that someone or that something that could just push the right buttons of anger within you. Someone that knew how to provoke you in the worst ways. In, in uh, 2005, Spike Lee, the famous movie maker, decided that he would, it, I'm sorry, it's 1995. And uh, Reggie Miller decided, Spike Lee decided that uh, he would give Reggie Miller a taste of his own medicine. It's the Eastern Conference Finals. And in the Eastern Conference Finals, it was game five. Madison Square Garden is going crazy. This is like your classic story of the Indiana Pacers, the good boys of basketball versus the New York Knicks, right? The bad boys of all things basketball. And Spike Lee has a front row seat. He doesn't actually play basketball, which is funny about the story. And so Spike Lee, uh, Reggie's having a terrible game, just three quarters of missing everything. And Spike Lee is heckling him. He's just going after him the whole game. If you uh, Google search it, you can see all these images of little Spike Lee just provoking Reggie Miller the whole time. And then it comes to a point where Spike actually let the words out of his mouth, uh, your sister Cheryl shoots better than you, right? And it was like, oh, it's on, you know? And because uh, uh, boys act like boys, right, in the professional world of sports. And then a hilarious thing happens is the crowd at Madison Square Garden starts shouting, Cheryl, Cheryl, every time Reggie Miller touches the ball. And so, so in this incredible moment, um, uh, Reggie somehow channels this incredible anger he has at being called his sister's name. And by the way, he's been called his sister's name throughout his whole career because she was that good. One time, Reggie Miller um, won the state championship. He scored 25 points. But Cheryl scored 85 points in the women's college basketball. <laughs> so uh, Cheryl Miller could dunk the basketball, which is amazing, in a whole other story. So anyway, um, back to Reggie Miller and Spike Lee. So Spike Lee is provoking him, and Reggie, in the fourth quarter, scores 25 points. Seven three-pointers to win the game for, the Indiana, for Indiana Pacers. And then... The, the crowd, the fans of New York, erupt the next day with anger. And on the front page of the paper, they write, Thanks a lot, Spike. And the subtitle re reads, Outraged fans say Lee's taunt helped Pacers beat the Knicks. <laughs> so we've got this, this trash talker, Reggie Miller, who voices his anger. We've got um, Spike Lee, who's able to sort of voice his anger. And then, and then the fans, the New York Knicks. And 
we have this anger upon anger, and it's, it's entertaining, and it's fun. And all of us, every day, experience this anger. Anger is a part of what it means to be human. And this is not just a phenomenon of boys and men. Have you ever seen middle school girls go at it in a fight? Anger is a part of what it means to be human. Um, it's entertaining, but it, it can also be uh, painful, destructive in human lives, right? Do you remember the movie Kicking and Screaming by Will Ferrell? And in this movie, uh, his son is a fourth grader in the rec soccer division, and his dad actually trades his son to another team. And Will Ferrell is just furious in his car with his wife, and in that like classic delivery of Will Ferrell, he says, I am angry, and he builds in this intensity, I'm like a tornado of anger swirling about. And so anger, and Will Ferrell... And I wonder, um, many of us, haven't we all experienced road rage? Uh, Sometimes this expresses itself through sort of aggressive driving tactics, or maybe it's like rudely laying on the horn, or maybe even the international hand gesture of anger known across the world. Um, Anger has this this profoundly human emotion that we all experience and have you thought about the language we use when we talk about anger? And so it, it's entertaining and it's instructive to us, but it's also um, destructive, right? We use language like this in American culture. We talk about people losing their temper, people going ballistic, people flying off the handle. I've heard people say to me, like, I hope my boss doesn't snap again. It's like, this is not good, right? This sense of anger that we have um, in our culture, but it's also been across cultures and across the world. And then uh, that story in the gospel that is in all four gospels where Jesus just loses his temper at the temple, right? Casting out the money changers. And what do we do with that story? How do we think about it? How do we understand what was going on in that moment? And so what I want to do today is just ask the question, what does Jesus' anger teach us about being human? What does Jesus' anger teach us about what it means to follow God in this world? So psychologists confirm what we all know, that anger is this basic human emotion. And anger is something that, that we all have, that we all carry within us. And I'm interested that sometimes we, we always seem to talk negatively about anger, when in reality it's something that's just built into the very fabric of being human. And what amazes me about anger is that the more we suppress it and the more we deny the things we're angry about, actually the worse it gets. So it seems that, the, that as human, the only option we have is to learn how to deal with our anger. So we don't have to, we get the ability to choose what we do with the anger that is with inside of us. And the Bible observes this sort of um, energy, this sort of choice that we have within us. And it uses these great poetic lines from the wisdom literature in the book of Proverbs. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. But one who has a hasty temper exalts folly. And then a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And then again, those who are hot-tempered stir up strife, but those who are slow to anger calm contention. Those with good sense are slow to anger, and it is their glory to overlook an offense. And then a fool gives vent to anger, but the wise quietly holds it back. I love I love this ancient wisdom because they don't try to deny the human reality at all. They name it, that, that to be human is to have anger. We wouldn't be human if we didn't feel things so deeply at times. 
And so I wonder, what is anger? How do we get a clearer sense? And this week I was just thinking that anger is always this sense within us of being wronged. It's triggered by our perceptions of something being fair or unfair or right or wrong. And the easiest way to say it is anger is this response to the experience of mistreatment by others. And so whenever we're snubbed or put down or disappointed or wounded or betrayed or exploited, our internals begin to simmer. And we have this tension within us whether it's going to boil over on others or whether we're going to direct it into other ways. So I learned this week this beautiful thing that um, in India, they talk about anger in two different ways. In India, they talk about anger as having bhavas, is sort of this like crude emotions. This is like the slamming your hand through the wall. This is like the rageful anger. This is driving your car off, uh, rear-ending someone. That's bhavas. And rasas is that refined anger. That sort of simmer that goes good places. That moral indignation when someone does something wrong. That ability to stay cool and calm and directed with your anger. And this is really helpful to me when I think about anger because... In English, you know, we only have this word anger. We, we don't separate it. We don't talk about it. And so I started just like practicing this on, on my kids. You know, does it help you to say bavas and rasas? And it was so cool because Trey had this moment where um, he uh, stomped up the stairs in a pure anger. And I was like, so is that a bavas or a rasas? Bavas, Dad. All bavas. And it was so great. And it's so great for all of us to be able to kind of recognize that internal within us. Is this a bavas moment? Is this a rasas moment? And just that honesty and lightness helps us to process that anger. So bhavas and rasas, that, that response within us to injustice around us, to the wrongdoing that happens. So the question becomes, how do we have more rasas and less bhavas, anger within us, right? And, and so then we come to this beautiful quote that we've been talking about, this philosopher who said that emotions our engagements with the world that give us insight into the nature of the world. And so this whole idea of our internals is that we feel things. We have internals. And to not deny the feelings of grief and wonder and anger and rage, but to be able to channel them, to be able to put them in right perspective. And we've, we've used the, uh, the joke of the amazing woman at the DAV who, when you take out your ticket in this terrible, awful place that no one ever wants to go to, says, thank you, sugar. Thank you, sweetie pie. And she changes the atmosphere of the DMV because of her internal kindness. And so you, as well, with your anger, you can either raise the room as a, as a bavas moment and put everyone on edge, or you can become that rasas anger when things go wrong. You can be cool and calm and collected and direct your anger. And, of course, we're, we don't always get this right, but we can strive to continue to be the people that have the eternal internal humming within us. So what does Jesus' anger in the temple teach us about our own anger? What does it teach us about this ability to be human? And this incredibly wonderful story, right? All four Gospels, it's central to Jesus' life. And, and it often catches us off guard that there is a story about Jesus' anger. And so the temple in Jerusalem, this incredibly important symbolic moment for an ancient Jew, this was the very place where God's presence was made known to the world. This was sort of the soul of the entire world, the place where that hope and love and compassion emanated from. This was their universe. They made pilgrimages to this place. They believed that this is the very place that God will bless the world from. 
It was their base camp, right? Their, their base camp and where they believed that in power and energy went out for the least, for the last, and for the lost. That this was the place God was using and these were the people to bless the entire world. And so this, this incredibly powerful symbol and we're told um, in the Gospels that Jesus goes to the temple. And on this day, we, remember that where we're at in the Gospels is we're headed towards the cross. We're headed to this moment of death. And Jesus enters Jerusalem and he goes to this place, this place of hope and beauty for the world. And when he goes there, he sees the money changers. And now this is nothing out of the ordinary. Being sort of a center, an international travel center, people will want to come to the temple. And there would, by nature, need to be exchanges there, exchanges of goods. And so it, it ponders the question, what was Jesus doing? Why does he get so angry? And so the language of the New Testament is really fun here. It says that Jesus drove out the money changers. The language is ekbalo. So fun word, right? Say ekbalo. Isn't that fun? Ekbalo, literally cast out, draw out these money changers. And here's this word is so fun. It literally means, um, it has this sense, there's a story in the ancient world where they were ekbaloed and someone threw someone overboard a ship. So it's literally this casting out, this driving out, this strong, intense language. Every time in the Gospel of Luke where it uses ekbalo, the other times are where he's exercising demons from people, ancient world, right? And he's casting out these demons, ekbalo, he's sending them out. So it's this strong, powerful language that there is an evil that somehow these money changers are bringing to this good place on the earth. And Jesus is saying, no more. But why? Why would Jesus do this? Is this Bava's anger or is this Rasa's anger? What's going on? And then Jesus says, these words, very incredibly wonderful words that explain to us the motivation behind him. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer. This is um, from Isaiah. When Isaiah was talking about what the community of faith was supposed to be. A place of spiritual life. A place that was catalytic for our spirituality with one another. A place where you were inspired to dream and to think and to wonder about how we could make a difference in this world. So Jesus is saying that somehow at this moment, the mission of this catalytic place that people came and were inspired was being lost. And the second phrase, but you have made it a den of robbers. This comes from, um, this comes from a place in the Bible that's actually talking deeply about the internal and external and how there is this hypocrisy that's going on that's stopping people from their internals being set on love and compassion. So Jesus uses these two quotes from the Bible that are meant as this parallel. You were supposed to be this, but you were this. And I love this language of Den Roberts. It's literally a bandit's cave. And I have to admit to you, the Bible's really, really fun. A bandit's cave makes me think of like a saloon in the wild, wild west with like, uh, you know, alcohol and whiskey and gunslingers and prostitution, you know, like it's this bandit's cave that Jesus is saying, you were supposed to be this place where we inspire the whole world and there was this catalytic energy and you turned into this like swanky saloon, on the, on the, a saloon in the wild, wild west. Isn't that such beautiful, neat imagery? You became a place that was about evil instead of the life you were supposed to be about. And so Jesus is very calculated, very precise. And so this is Rasa's anger. This is directed attack of, you have misplaced your mission, temple. You have turned this into a place that buys and sells when you were supposed to be a place that inspired human hearts for the transformation of the world. So I think what's going on here is Jesus is saying, 
You've forgotten your mission. You've forgotten your mission. You became a saloon in the wild, wild west, this bandit's cave, instead of this place, this house of prayer for the world. And so Jesus is not just making a personal attack on these money changers who are just trying to make an exchange. He's attacking the system. He's attacking the system that's set up that says that it's okay to exchange money. He, what he's doing is saying we are about something more in this place. We are about something bigger and stronger and bolder. So Jesus directs his anger at reminding this temple what they were originally all supposed to be about. And then the passage comes to an end like this. What I love, every day he was teaching in the temple. So he says these strong words, he casts out them, and then he's there still. Because he loves this place. He loves this temple and all its hopes and all its dreams. So he stays there reminding them again, you are supposed to be a catalytic place where love goes out from. And then it says this. It's like, it's like this dun, 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 dun in the New Testament, right? It's all headed towards the cross and death. And it says the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him. So he's at the temple with these religious leaders and he's saying to them, remember your mission. Remember who you are to be in the world. Remember the least, the last, and the lost. And the religious leaders are plotting to kill him. So there's this tremendous tension, right? They are choosing to be about the bandit's cave and all the behaviors of the bandit's cave instead of this great hope and this great love that can emanate to the world. And so Jesus gives us this just beautiful example of what we can do with our anger. Instead of just letting it boil over, we can let it slowly simmer. We can direct our, ang- our, our anger intentionally, calculated in ways that can transform the structures and the systems of this world. So what do we learn about this beautiful, beautiful example? We learned first of all that uh, all the emotions and anger that we often feel guilty over is affirmed by God. That it's okay to feel things deeply. It's okay for your internals to hurt when you are wronged or when someone else is wronged or when our world looks upon someone and sets up systems that are dehumanizing. It's okay to feel that in your gut. And the second thing we learn is this beautiful process, to, a way of thinking about our own internal life, this eternal internal, that Jesus was moved beyond just the pure anger within him and became calculated with it thoughtful with it, made a plan with thoughtful words to say, I will forever teach this temple that they are supposed to be about this house of prayer, this way of life, instead of this, uh, this cave of dens, instead of this wild, wild west saloon. And so um, we, we are able to learn from Jesus this type of processing that, that Rasa's anger is a good thing and a, a transformative thing for our life and for the world. And so um, there, there are very few wild, wild western saloons, saloons anymore, but, um, but you have a real life in Highlands Ranch or in South Denver. And I was thinking about how this really played out to me. And I was thinking that um, one of the things that has come up in my life, my own internals with anger, is as I grow and as I've had kids, you start to think about, like, how you were raised. And, um, and I started to think about, like, some, some really deep pains that I had with my dad, like some things that were really hard. And as I, um, I admit that, like, you know, you can take the bhavas route and just, and just v- get angry and get mad. Or you can decide to reflect on these more. And you can decide to go internal. And I, I've been able to, um, the process has been like this. Like, 
think about these deep pains, process them, remind yourself that they have, they continue, your anger has an effect on your family, on the people you love, on your friends. And as I've been able to process these, I've been trying to get down to the core. What's the bigger issue? So not just the, the temporary, but the eternal. And I thought about like, the, the way that, um, that I wasn't loved and just able to own it in my anger, the way that I wasn't taught skills that I needed for life. And then I was able to, to kind of do this thing of like, what it, what's the core of that anger? And the core of that anger is that we live in a society of fatherlessness a lot of times. We live in a society that hasn't helped dads become better dads. And so it was able for me to be like, okay, then I can process it. I want to be a good dad. I want to be the type of dad that, that loves his daughter, that loves his son, that deals with that anger instead of, instead of the bhavas, that takes that deep, rasas look at it and invests into them and loves them and allows myself to be changed. So that's an example of the process of allowing yourself to do the reflective work of moving from the, the brain's way of reacting, flying, or fleeing and moving to the frontal lobe of a deep sense of resolute action in one direction. And so Jesus invites us to this rasas anger, this reflection, this eternal internal. Of thinking of our lives not just by one reaction, one anger bhavas, but the deeper way of what we sow with the lives that we are living. Uh, I think it's uh, incredibly wonderful. Though, and, um, actually, it's not wonderful. On April 27th, 1937, in the town of Guernica, Spain, it was bombed by Nazi Germany, if you know the story. What for Germany was just an opportunity to perfect its aerial warfare devastated an entire town in Guernica. So literally, Hitler gave his approval to bomb this town, just a small town, and they destroyed the entire town. 1,600 lives were lost. So Pablo Picasso grew up in this town. And when he heard the news, he was working in France, a famous painter, and he heard the news that the library he grew up with and the teachers that taught him and his relatives that still lived in the town were all gone. This aerial raid was one of the first bombings of, of our world, and it devastated this town in Spain, obliterating it. And so Pablo Picasso um, felt this great rage within him from what Germany had done to his town in Spain. And at, at the time, he was working on a commission project, but he put that project away, and he started on what is one of the world-famous paintings called, of course, Guernica. In fact, when you search it, you only come up with this painting, and then you have to find the story behind it. And what he did with this paintbrush is spend months and months and hours and hours processing that rage, processing all that bhavas on this beautiful canvas, scratching it out, starting over, doing this internally hard work until he could push beyond those immediate reactions for those eternal reactions and he painted this incredibly beautiful, detailed, rich, you can look at it for hours, and it is this incredibly emphatic painting that speaks to us and says to us, uh, reminds us of the power of war on innocent lives. And so instead of just reacting and, and getting angry, he used an art form to voice and to vent all his anger and created something in the world that would remind us all of the eternal reality of destruction and pain from warfare. I thought this week that that I want to be like Picasso, that I want to be as thoughtful as Jesus as I approach this world with its injustices, with its pains. 
I want to not just react out of that bavis anger, but push myself to something richer, something deeper, something more. Because don't we all want to give the world something beautiful, to make of our life something far richer than just bavis anger, but the deep rasas anger, creating new world for others, eliminating poverty and hopelessness in our world, creating our own masterpiece with our life. Don't we all want to be like Pablo Picasso?